Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is a repeat guest. It's Phil Simon. He's a speaker, author of six management books, including the one we're going to talk about today, The Visual Organization, Data Visualization, try to say that three times, Big Data and the Quest for Better Decisions. So welcome back, Phil. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. So, you know, the last time you were here, we talked about big data, and here we are talking about it again. So uh, one of the things I think that's interesting, and uh, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but it sure seems like um, big data is that topic like the weather, that everybody's talking about it, but not enough people are doing much about it. Yeah, there's a great line from Dan Airely, big data is like teenage sex, and I'll paraphrase it. I won't read it in front of me, but it's something along the lines of everyone has heard of it, claims they're doing it, but in reality doesn't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and one of the things that I think is interesting is that a lot of times when people are talking about it and everybody then is, you know, in every boardroom saying, get me some of that big data, um, you know, does that be just because it's big? I mean, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of trying to at least understand what really works and doesn't work and, you know, having some analytics in place. But uh, um, just because the data is big, does that make it right? Of course not. That big data doesn't eliminate uncertainty. It doesn't eliminate the need for human intuition, as some people have suggested. I would argue that intuition is even more important because you don't necessarily know where to start. Certainly, if you run a, a very small business, you may have a very strong sense of your customers and why they buy certain things or don't buy certain things. But there now, more than ever, uh, is access to massive data sets, whether they're from uh, Twitter or different social channels to third-party metadata in the book I write about open data. So it, it is difficult in many instances to know where to start, particularly in more politicized cultures, people are afraid to fail. Um, as I write in the last two books, and, and certainly with the new one, I think it's important to embrace data discovery. And to me, true innovation knows not necessarily where to start. One of my favorite quotes is from Thomas Edison. I didn't invent the light bulb. I invented 999 ways not to do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, so um, can you give some examples of how people are employing? And I think a lot of times there's a lot of, um, I think, misinformation and misinterpretation of what it even means. So um, can you, you have a couple examples of how people are employing it in a way that, that then, you know, trickles down to a tactic? Yeah, in the book, I write the flagship case studies of Netflix, and as I write in the book, there is no award for the biggest big data company, but if pressed, it might be Netflix. Hmm. Think about it. Something like one-third of all U.S. internet traffic during the weeknights comes from Netflix streaming. Um, that's one of the reasons net neutrality has become such a big deal, but at this point, that's neither here nor there. And as I was researching the book and looking at companies doing really cool things with big data, Netflix quickly jumped out. Now, they are very proprietary about what they do. And when I spoke to people at Netflix researching the book, they were very friendly, but they also said flat out, you know, data is a huge source of our competitive advantage. We're not opening up the kimono for you or anybody. Well, and, and when you talk about them using it, you mean, so if I watch uh, X movie, then their ability to say, here are the next three that you're going to want to watch? Sure. They had a contest about five years ago in which they offered a million dollars to anybody who could build a better mousetrap, specifically create an algorithm that would match movies more accurately. I think about it. Netflix doesn't do annual contracts. This is not your cable company. You can right. pay by the month. Right. Um, it's not 
very sticky in that sense. If you're going to remain, it's because they can serve up good content, and that's why they spent $100 million for the first season of House of Cards and et cetera, et cetera. But as I was researching the book, I came across some information that I found absolutely fascinating. As part of Netflix's algorithm now, they incorporate the colors of specific movie and TV show jackets. For instance, Hmm. with the aforementioned House of Cards, Kevin Spacey's on there as a black background that's very similar to the Patrick Stewart version of Macbeth that ran on CBS. Now, it's not just, oh, that's kind of black and that's also kind of black. They literally, John, get into the actual HTML color. And in the book, I have a couple graphics on that. Hmm. And then it doesn't mean that that alone is going to drive their algorithm, right? That doesn't mean that John will watch anything so long as it has a black jacket. However, as a recent article, I believe on The Atlantic Show, Netflix has grouped its movies and TV shows into something like 77,000 different subgenres. Mm. So for myself, you know, I happen to like shows like Breaking Bad and The Wire. And based on that information, Netflix may be able to recommend movies or TV shows. And that color is just a piece of it, but that might be something that actually does matter. So in some instances, we know that I like dramas. We know that I like David Fincher movies, whatever. But you can capture now through the data visualization and gathering tools that they have employed that other 10 or 15 percent, which may do two things. It'll serve up better uh, data and recommendations. But also, if you were thinking about starting a competing service, that could kind of scare the pants off you. So why even try? Well, you know, and and it's funny. I mean, I think a lot of times people look at uh, these tools and and the, the topic around or the conversation around big data and they think of, the cool things that you can do with it. Um, and and one of the things I think that's probably more important that's not even really talked about is the people that are doing it are changing the way we buy um, mm-hmm. and or at least changing our experience and turning that experience into an expectation. Uh, I think of somebody like Amazon. You know, Amazon does such a great job of personalizing the buying experience, you know, to a to a, an annoying way in some case, <laughs> point, I think, in some cases. But I think that's changed the game for everybody, hasn't it? Because that becomes an expectation to some degree. Yeah, you, I don't know if you happen to see my, my stream of tweets this morning, John, but I just wrote an article for one of my clients on Amazon and it's recently filing a patent for, and I'm not making this up, anticipatory commerce. Right. So for the listeners who haven't heard about this, Amazon is going to, in theory, send, if not directly to your home, things that you might want or probably want, but you don't even know yet, but maybe things to a warehouse such that they can facilitate mm. same-day shipping. Mm. Uh, Amazon, as I wrote about in my fourth book, The Age of the Platform, and, and in the last book as well, uh, is another one of those companies that I agree with you completely has raised the bar. And the things that Amazon can do are just flat-out scary. I, I've often said that if I had the desire, I could start my own online bookstore. But I don't have the data on my customers. And one of the things that's really been disruptive, and you're an author as well, to publishers is that the publishers don't necessarily know who purchases their books. Amazon does. Yeah, yeah. And that's a huge source of competitive advantage. The same way Netflix has an algorithm that recommends movies and TV shows, Amazon has an algorithm that recommends books. So if I buy one of your books, then maybe it might recommend a Seth Godin book or a Mitch Joel book. One of the things that, of course, we've been talking about big data, but the the real difference in this book is you're you're actually talking about a new kind of organization that not only uses data, but but actually is is employing it in a visual way. So, uh, talk about what what does that new kind of organization 
look like? And is, are we talking about IBM uh, IBM Club only, or are we talking about this is something that actually any size business can employ? I would argue, John, that any size business can adopt the mindset in the book, and it really is a mindset. Yes, you need the right tools. You can't do everything in Excel. And there are limits to static bar charts and pie charts. I find that interactive tools tend to teach us more things. They don't necessarily produce the right answer, but they allow us to interact with the data and possibly ask better questions that may in turn lead to the quote-unquote right answer. But you know, Netflix can be intimidating because uh, it's, I think, has a $28 billion market cap. But I intentionally selected a startup in the book here in Las Vegas where I live called Wedgies.com. And even though they're a six-person startup, they understand the importance of data visualization, not only in terms of their product, their, their customer-facing service that let, lets anybody create a poll, and now they have pictures of animated GIFs. But on the back end, since they're, they use Amazon Web Services, if their polls are blowing up, as what happened about six, eight months ago with a NASCAR poll, they need to see that and then quickly make the adjustments on their end because they're paying literally by the uh, by the pounder or by the um, transaction. So if you're a six-person startup and can use data visualization tools and, and a mindset that says if we can see it, we'll make a better decision, then I fail to see how a company of 50 or 100 employees can't do it. Yeah, and, and I've read a quote um, somewhere um, from you uh, that I think it's great um, that goes right to that point. A company with a dysfunctional culture and no sense of innovation cannot save itself with data uh, via data viz. And I think that that's a point that a lot of people jump in and say, oh, now that we've got this great data, we're, we're in great shape. But there obviously are uh, a lot of things that, that make the usefulness of that data um, probably more important than the fact that you can actually turn it into a picture. I would completely agree, and one of my favorite quotes from the book is from James Barksdale, who started a couple of multi-billion dollar companies, including, I think it was an early investor in Netscape. He says, if we have the data, let's use that. Otherwise, let's use my opinions. <laughs> you still have to have a, a culture that embraces that type of thing. Uh, going back now 15 years to when I worked for a, a Fortune uh, 50 company, I worked in human resources and got thrown into a project in which they were analyzing their recruiting efforts. And you know, should we recruit at Ivy League schools or this was in New Jersey? Should we stick with state schools like Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey? Long story short, I wound up having to massage a lot of data, but proved pretty much beyond a reasonable doubt that even though places like Harvard and Cornell were great in terms of appearances, we spent a lot of money. We didn't get a lot of people from there. Mm. And the people that we hired, we paid a lot more and wound up leaving after 18 months versus people at Rutgers, lower starting salary, lower recruiting costs, stayed a lot longer. It was a no-brainer. I presented that to the head of recruiting and his answer was very simple. But I like recruiting at the Ivy League. <laughs> so, so don't ask the question if you don't want to hear the answer. And I do take a holistic approach on things. It's not simply about buying the shiny new tool. Um, it's, I think, a lot more multifaceted than that. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting, and I hear people pushing back with, you know, all this conversation about big data sometimes is that, you know, the whole industry of, of you know, BI has, has supposedly been around for decades, right? Oh, it has. And BI has its roots in, I think, the 1950s. And the term BI has been around for certainly longer than my professional career. And I'm 41. Um, but in the book, I distinguish traditional business intelligence tools like an IBM Cognos or a MicroStrategy or even some of the open source tools like Pentaho, with the data discovery tools that we see today. Again, with business intelligence, I think of very useful dashboards that tell you, let's say you use MailChimp, 
who clicked on your right. newsletter, what percentage is that, what's the industry average. And again, that's all very important information. But I would argue that it doesn't necessarily encourage data discovery. Why are these people clicking? And you may not be able to answer that uh, in a dashboard. Um, so those tools are still useful. I don't think they're going away. But I would argue, like I said, with this mindset and the new tools, one of asking questions. With Netflix, for example, just to come full circle, I sincerely doubt that somebody said, well, if we can quantify the colors on DVD jackets, then our algorithm will be 8% more effective. Mm -hmm. At a company like Netflix, they think, why not do it? Maybe it will work, maybe it won't. But this notion, and I've written about this extensively, of trying to quantify things with a precise ROI, I just think is nonsense. Who, who knows what's going to happen? It might be 20%, it might be 0%, well, it might be 1,000%. And, and I think that uh, I think this is maybe, you know, I, I think what's missing a lot of times with all, because now we, you know, just look at the access we have to information now. Um, and I think that uh, this is the jump from information to insight, isn't it? Ideally, but it's not necessarily a linear path. Yeah. Um, I think that if you are putting a time frame on it, that could be dangerous. Um, if you're trying to understand your customers, so, you know, if you've got 10 of them, it's a lot easier than if you're Amazon and you have 230 million. As I've said many times before, you don't go from zero to Google overnight. You know, Google just hit its 15-year anniversary. I think it was late last year. Um, it is a journey. Uh, it's not a, uh, a sprint. Um, so unless you're willing to accept that, you know, the insights may come very quickly, but they may come a lot, a lot longer. And I think it's important to understand that going in. Another term that I absolutely loathe is big data project. Uh, because to me, that has a finite start date and end date. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the companies like Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, Netflix, Twitter, they're never really finished. I'm not saying that they can go on forever and have unlimited budgets, but they're always thinking about what's next. Yeah, well, they're, 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 they look at it as infrastructure, not as a project. And I think that's an important mindset, yeah. uh, John, to adopt regardless of the size of the company. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you have a thousand people to throw at a particular project. But you know, to, to get back to your question about insights, your insights that are true now may not be true in six months or a year. When I tell people that, oh, I've heard about Pinterest, should I try it out? I say, why not? It may be a complete waste of time. It may be the single biggest source of your business. Yeah. How do you know unless you try? Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's interesting because uh, I want to switch to small business. I have a lot of small business listeners, and um, you know, so I think a lot of them feel like, well, I don't. I only have ten customers, right? Um, so, you know. Big data maybe is not as important to me as maybe thinking about real time data, um, and I, I I've uh, I believe that one of the greatest sources of untapped big data, if you will, for small business is their sales team. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I and I wonder, you know, if you know how do you how do you take that company that's got ten customers, as you said, and and maybe two salespeople, and they're going out there in a the market and and say how can we how can we think in terms of you know real time data to be our big data, or is that just uh, a, a stretch of of this concept? I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a stretch, but I agree with your general point. If you don't know who your customers are, uh, that's a problem. And I've always said that doing small data right is probably more important at first than in doing big data, right? It doesn't mean that you're going to have perfection, but let's hope that if you have 10 customers, you know their addresses <laughs> and the contact name if it's only 10. Um, but in the book, I, I treat initially this notion of a visual organization as a binary. But in reality, it's more uh, nuanced. And in chapter, I think it's seven of the book, 
I lay out this framework of four stages, and I won't go through it now, but essentially um, you're better at your level four visual organization if you can do big data well and small data well, and Netflix is certainly a case in point. Um, but if you're a startup, you might not do a lot with big data or, or small business. Uh, to get back to your question about untapping the resources of your sales team, I have a pet peeve about email being this default mode of communication. And we're well past the early 2000s with nascent intranets. If your salespeople are, are talking to customers, why aren't you capturing that information? What are the customers saying? There are ways, even if it's just unstructured text, to mine that data and yeah. determine why, in theory, you're getting a deal or, or not getting a deal. If that information is only kept in email, there are still tools to analyze it. But maybe it's time to think about using a proper CRM. That way, if you lost a deal, maybe you go through the notes and say, oh, wow, we actually are losing a lot of deals with John, the salesperson. Why is that? Maybe John needs some training. Maybe John's approach is a little bit off. Maybe John should be selling to different types of customers. Mm -hmm. Again, asking questions and delving into it as opposed to, yeah, we're not getting these deals. Oh, well, who knows why? Yeah, it's more likely that John has got all the uh, outdated uh, sales documents that he's downloaded to his laptop, and uh, and he's using those instead of uh, <laughs> the real ones. I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm projecting here. Um, <laughs> the uh, um, let's conclude today talking about. We haven't really talked about tools uh, per se, and I know that uh, that. There's a good reason not to talk about them, but in the end, a lot of times people like are drawn at least to start exploring uh, when they see a tool like Visually and and how cool that is, and the first time they've seen a pie chart of of something that's maybe been a little more complex to them. So, uh, are there a few that uh, that that you mentioned or or that you particularly like? There's so many of them. Yeah, it's funny. Um, in the book, I lead off by describing how I was able to using a service called Visify visualize my tweets. And it, it took seconds. It connected to the Twitter API. And literally, I think it was a week ago, the, uh, Yahoo announced that it had purchased Visify. So I was joking with uh, Todd Silverstein, who was one of the founders of the company. My book must have been the reason, and he owes me a check for a million dollars or whatever. Um, but that one went away, and, and that's not the only one by any stretch of the imagination. If you go back 15 years, proper business intelligence tools before the cloud tended to be very expensive and only large organizations could right. afford them. That's a point that I made in my third book, The New Small. These days, there are tools that are very inexpensive, like, say, Tableau, uh, with, I think, 15,000 customers. Uh, you don't have to be a big organization. I mean, do the math. There aren't 15,000 Fortune 500 companies. It's just The math is a little yeah. bit off. Yeah. And there are also plenty of open source tools like D3.js. And in the book, my first ever appendix, uh, six books, uh, figured it was time I had one, I list some of the more interesting ones that are out there. Some of them are from big vendors like IBM. They have a tool called Many Eyes, but it's essentially free to use. But there really are so many of them. I, I make the point that certain tools are maybe different. I, I don't know if they're better or not. I guess that it hinges upon your need. But as I encourage people, you know, play around with a lot of these things. Uh, there will be a bit of a learning curve depending on the tool, but don't just assume that you have to do everything in Excel. I think that's um, a default mindset that people have. And I love Excel. I use it for certain things. But fundamentally, it's an accounting application. I would argue it's not a data or um, discovery or exploration application. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, for a lot of people, though, that aren't collecting anything, I mean, it's a, it can be an okay place to start if that's the first time you're actually seeing 
the 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 pie chart that <laughs> that I talked about, and that's your first example of visualization. But you're right when you, even playing with a tool like Visually, and, and it's just pretty uh, uh, pretty interesting uh, to see you know how it's presented. And we really didn't even um, we really didn't even touch on this idea, but I, I do think that 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 there are a lot of people that get the the, the information that they get in a form of a visual is so much easier for them to comprehend than say, you know, a, a bunch of statistics on a spreadsheet. Sure. It, two things that really stand out here as I was researching the book and I've heard different stats on this, but um, to your point about humans and the human brain recognizing information in a visual format faster than raw data, the factor is something like 60 or 60,000, I guess, depending on the type of data or how smart the person is. So there's no doubt in my mind that if you see something, it'll just register, even though that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right thing. The other cool thing about visually for people who may be a little bit intimidated is that aside from offering a kind of WYSIWYG tool that anybody can use to drag and drop data, create infographics, whatever, they have this sort of eBay-like marketplace in which you can put out Mm. a project and say, I need a tool created that does this, that, and the other thing. And then you can have actual visualization specialists create it for you. And in the book, I use this example of a tool uh, called the Startup Universe. And you can literally go nuts with it for days, seeing how many investors in different companies or different industries or different time periods and interact with it and go, wow, this is the type of thing that I could have for my organization. So there really is no shortage of tools uh, but it gets back to this, I think, mindset that you have to have. Can we visualize the data? In fact, uh, Netflix has this mantra inside. Uh, we should visualize what we can, and the sooner we act on it, the more valuable it will be. Yeah. Well, Phil, thanks so much for joining me. We've been talking about the visual organization, which I'm assuming can be uh, got at philsimon.com as well as uh, anybody who sells books. Thanks a lot, John. I enjoyed it. <laughs> 